0: Yep. Um, some of you remember a couple other times we've had guest speakers here. I've said that um, my policy is that nobody can be interesting 52 Sundays a year. Um, and so it's my policy to, to not preach at least 12 Sundays a year. And so I try to get people to come that it'll be really helpful and nourishing for us. And this morning I've invited Adam Penning to come here and speak. He's um, one of the lead staff uh, staff workers at the Campus Crusade chapter um, down on campus. He's had me speak down there, so I have to invite him, right? Um, <laughs> Adam holds degrees from Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, UCLA, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, the University of Juneau, um, <laughs> Texas A&M, um, did I leave in at Yale, yeah, yeah, Duke, yeah. Fuller, etc., Um and, uh, so yeah, he's, he's, anyway, he's a good preacher, and he's gonna come and, uh, and share God's word with us, so would you, um, welcome Adam and listen.
1: Thanks, ben.
0: And more, and even more importantly, listen attentively to it. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Hello. Hi. Apparently Nick has a thing for Adams. Was there the last guy in Adam? Yeah. Is that true? All right, all right, there you go. Um, uh, I, it's a privilege for me to be here, for, for me to be able to uh, open the Word of God with you guys and communicate with you. So I, I, um, I do work down on campus with Campus Crusade for Christ, um, alongside of some of your very talented, intelligent, handsome deacons. Uh, not deacons, elders, sorry. Uh, Jim Tanner uh, and Dean Waldemeyer. So they're, um, they're good friends of mine. We uh, enjoy each other. And with a very talented, good-looking, spiritual, godly team uh, staff team who uh, joins alongside us to bring the gospel to college students in our community, right? And also reach out to people all around the planet. I, in some ways, I feel like I, um, I belong at High Point Church. Um, I, we, we had a group of like 100 or so students who s- spent the night here Friday night. So I've really been here every day of the week, weekend. So I feel like I understand how things work around here. So it's good to be here. I'm married I have a, a lovely wife and two really crazy cool kids, and today is my birthday. Um, so, cards, gifts, whatever, out in the narthex. You can give those to me. So, narthex! That sounds like something out of the Lord of the Rings, I think. You know, it's like, the Nazgul is in the narthex! So, you know, I don't know, but it just seems a little crazy. Um, <laughs> entryway, I don't know. A narthex, that's great. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't go to all those schools, and that's fine. Um, but I, I went to Iowa State University. I graduated from there. I was a, an art student in art history, that sort of thing, and have been on staff for the last 10 years. Um, uh, spent a year as a missionary in Brazil, and that's where I met my lovely wife. She, we're both from Iowa, but we had to go to South America to meet each other. So that worked out really good for us. Um, I love history. Uh, I love, I mean, art history, history in general, there's something about it that I don't know. I just can't get enough of it. I love the History Channel. Um, My wife will come in and I'm watching yet another show on like World War II. And she's like, what? How many angles can one network put on World War II, you know? Um, I uh, I love like uh, the Band of Brothers series. Any old, have anybody seen this, this series, the Band of Brothers? There's something compelling about the stories of World War II. I don't. Know, if you watch the Band of Brothers, at the beginning and the end, there's these always these um, these interviews with the men who are portrayed in the film. It's uh, the film is really a, a reenactment of a company of soldiers all the way for World War II. And there's these old men at the beginning and the end who are telling what they went through, and they start to get choked up and tear up and weep about what they're going through. And there's something in my manly heart that goes, "Oh, you know." And uh, even this morning, I was writing my parents' car to church, and they have. Um, the Greatest Generation by Tom Brokaw. They're listening to it in the car on their way here. And I'm listening to this story of this Marine and, and, uh, and his life after the war. And I get a little choked up in the car. There's something about those stories, I think, that just grips your heart, you know? And it, it, there's something different about World War II than, say, like, the War of 1812. Uh, how many of you know anything about the War of 1812? Uh, there's a few hands, right? Um... I mean, it was, I, it was... Men fought and died for our freedom in the War of 1812. And they call it like the, the, ne- the, uh, the second uh, war of independence. Um, but there's something about that war that we've kind of grown accustomed to or distant from. Uh, I don't know. I think some of it is the fact that when we look at World War II, those stories in our history, they, they're still alive. Right? It hasn't passed from living memory. So we can... We can hear grandpa tell about the frostbite he got at Bastogne. Or your mom or your, or your grandmother talking about how she cried for three days. And locked herself in a room after she lost her brother at Guadalcanal. Because it's in our living memory. There's something about it that's still fresh, that still grips our heart. In the War of 1812, it's just facts in a book that we little think about or realize the significance of what happened for us and to us. World War II, today, it's passing from living memory. Eventually, one day, it'll probably be just facts in a book. Stories we read about, maybe we're here, but it might not grip our heart like it does today. And I believe the danger with Christianity is that Jesus can become like that. He can, if we're not careful, he, he be, can become just facts in a history book and he won't grip our heart. Yet we might know the, all the right answers, right? The Sunday school answers, but we might know those answers without really wrestling with the questions and really wrestling with Jesus and who he really is and what he really means that he can just become something that we know about, you know, spout off the right answers to. Jesus has to grip our souls. This is who he's intended. ...to be. He can't be a pat answer or a fact. Growing up, I went to a religious school... ...and I learned a lot of things about Jesus... ...and that was really good for me. I learned a lot of the right answers. But I never really wrestled with the deeper questions... ...of who Jesus was deeper in my soul... ...and in my heart. And he kind of became just something I did. Just became answers. Jesus... ...Jesus is a question asker... More than he's an answer giver. Right? I think sometimes, if you look in the gospel, and the scriptures, people are asking Jesus questions all the time. You know, they think Jesus is going to give them an easy answer. Jesus is asked 183 questions in the scriptures, depending on how you count them. But he only really directly answers three of them. Most of the time, he answers a question with another question. Or he tells a story. But he does something to make us really think. About what, he's re- what we're really asking and what he's really asking us. He doesn't want just pat answers. It's not just about getting right answers. There were a lot of religious people who a lot knew a lot of right answers. But they were never really wrestling with what those answers really meant. What they really meant to them. What they were at a deeper level. When Jesus asks questions, he will probe the very depths of us. And then when we come to the right answer, he wants that answer to grip our soul. He doesn't want it just to become a fact like the War of 1812. This morning, I want to take a look at the scriptures... ...at what I think is arguably one of the most significant questions that Jesus asks... ...but also one that's really, really easy for us to just gloss over with the right answer. And it's a question uh, many of us would like to think is easy. Um, But I'd venture to guess... uh, ...Jesus never intended this question to be easy. So if you grab your Bibles... Uh, open them up with me. We're going to look uh, at Matthew 16-13. I know you guys are walking through Mark. So you're learning a lot about Jesus. A lot about his ministry. A lot about what's going on. Jesus kind of starts off his ministry. You know, John the Baptist kind of hails his coming. And it's this exciting time. Jesus is doing miracles. People are following him. He's getting pretty popular. He's feeding people food. You know, it's a free lunch for a lot of people. Uh, giving people sight. Then all of a sudden he starts to get kind of controversial. He starts saying things and doing things that the religious elite and leaders and religious folk that they don't really get or understand. And there's controversy that starts brewing. Jesus is popular. There's this buzz going around about who he is, what's he's about, what is he doing. Is he the Messiah? Is he going to be the one that you know like kicks the Romans out and sets life the way it should be? And it's in this contest context that Jesus asks the question. And I want us to look at So it's in Matthew 16, verse 13. It says this. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? I sometimes wonder, like, did they shuffle, you know, did they pause just a little bit before they answered? Simon Peter, characteristic, kind of speaks up and says, and replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered And, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Really, there's two questions Jesus asks. The first question is what do other people say? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Right? It's kind of this broad question. Uh, what are, what's the buzz? What are people saying about me? Now, the Son of Man, you know, like sometimes it's, um, sometimes in the scripture there's things that Jesus says. Or, he, you know, he refers to himself as the Son of Man or things that we don't totally get. Um, but that is important to understanding the passage. And when he's saying Son of Man here, um, he's, he's re- referring to a reference uh, ...a kind of an end times messianic prophecy that comes out of Daniel 17. And Daniel has this vision that one like the Son of Man will come on the clouds... ...and uh, he will come and he'll be given all dominion and rule and power and authority... ...and all nations and people and languages will worship this king, the, the Son of Man. And so really I kind of think what Jesus is asking is... He, ...you know, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. But I think he's also kind of asking, who do people say... This guy is, you know, the guy who's going to come back and set things right. And the disciples, you know, they, they kind of give some varied answers, right? They give some varied answers about who, they, who, they think, who people are saying that Jesus is and, and all that stuff. Um, you see, the, this son of man, he was the long-expected savior who would free the, the Israelites from the oppression of the Romans because the son of man would become their new true king, Right? Um, everybody is talking about this. In first century, if you're a first century Palestinian Jew, you you are wondering who the Son of Man is. Because like us, I, I don't care what your political affiliation is, whoever the president is, if you don't like him, you're always looking for the next president, Right? You, you're always looking for the guy who's going to set straight what the other guy screwed up, right? You're, you're thinking, who's it going to be? I mean, we're two years out from another election, right? And people are already talking about who the next candidate's going to be. Because you, you're like, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Well, in this context, it's a hundred times worse than that. These people, there's an occupying army in their homeland. And a, a foreign nation is taxing them. And they don't, this foreign nation that's occupying them and taxing them, they don't understand their religious system. They don't understand their culture or any of those things. And there's tension. They're always kind of on the brink of riots and revolution. Everybody's asking, who is the Son of Man? Who's it going to be? And so in this context, Jesus kind of looks at his fellas, you know, his inner circle, and he says, what do people say about the Son of Man? And they give an answer. It's a good answer. It's a varied answer. You know, I think today... ...you know, if, if, you, if you walked around Madison... And, ...and you asked people... ...who do people say, you know, God Who do people say Jesus is? Right? Our answers would be pretty varied too, wouldn't they? We hear a lot of different things. And that could be dangerous. Because really deciding... ...who you really... ...in the deepest parts of you believe Jesus to be... ...is critical... And it's dangerous if we come to the wrong, the wrong answer to that question. You know, today you might hear he's a... You know, you might say uh, he's a myth. He's something that was invented that was just made up. You know, to keep people in step and to control people about power. You might hear, you know, he's a prophet or a good moral teacher. You know, lots of people are like, I dig Jesus. I like what he has to say, love and all that sort of stuff. Right, he's a good teacher. Other people would say that, you know, he's... Um, no, he's, I think he's God, or he's my Lord, right? We'd say these sorts of things. Some people would say he's a, he was crazy, or he was a liar, he was just making stuff up. You hear a lot of things today. And it's in this environment that we really have to decide, yeah, who is Jesus? And all the things that are swirling around, who is he? And so Jesus, hearing these whispers, he just straight out asks his guys, guys, who do do they say the Son of Man is? You know? And and they give him this varied answer. They give him a varied answer. But, But Jesus just doesn't want to know what other people think about him. He wants to know what you really think about him. And that's why his question changes. It goes from this, broad thing, what do people think about the Son of Man to who do you say that I am? I mean really, when, you, th- when I mean, you got up this morning you know, you put on your nice clothes my wife thought I should wear a tie, I'm the guest speaker or whatever. so I put on a tie, I don't normally do that you get your kids in the car, you're wrestling with them, they're crying you strap them in, whatever, you know, you come here to worship God to worship Jesus but who do you really think he is? I mean, we can give the answer, well, Jesus is Lord, right? You know, or like, he's God, he's the, he's the Savior. You know, we can say that. But deep down, who do we really see him to be? You know, I I think I think for a lot of us, it could, it could be a lot of things. You know, we've got to wrestle with the question, who he really is. Peter, Peter stands up and says... You're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one. And Jesus gets excited. He's like, yeah, bingo, you get it. Jesus gets excited that Peter gets it at this point. But, you know, like us, we may say something is true about Jesus, but I don't think we always really get it. Peter, just, if you, if you have your Bibles, you flip out. look one paragraph down, and Jesus is rebuking Peter. He's going, because And he's saying, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what I'm about. You don't know where I'm going and what I'm doing. You don't know who I am. Peter wants Jesus to be the ruling political king. To set everything right. And Jesus says, no. I came to suffer and to die. And with my blood, purchase men for God. He says, Peter, you you don't get... You have your own agenda for me. Your own ideas about me. But I'm going to be the suffering king. ...I'm going to suffer for you. Peter doesn't get that. But Jesus still celebrates that Peter is starting to get the right answer. It's getting deeper for him. Peter's in process. Like us, we're in process. You know, I think... ...for some of us, you know, when we think about who Jesus is... ...we do say he's the Lord, but he could... ...sometimes I think he could just be like our buddy. Buddy Jesus. You know, he could be an accessory to our life. Something that we can... ...like a cross that we can just put on... ...and take off when it's convenient... Depending who we're with or the circumstances. He could, uh, he could just be our worldview, if we're really honest. A worldview that shapes how we vote and how we raise our kids. Maybe he's, you think of him, he's just a kind of a get-out-of-hell-free card. A moral code that decides what we should do or shouldn't do. You know, we have our own agendas. Like, maybe we think, okay, Jesus is going to be the thing that saves our marriage. Or he's going to be the thing, he's the thing... ...that's going to make my kids turn out right. And at a deep level, maybe that's what we really think about him. Maybe he's a religious system. Something that we just do on Sundays... ...to make us feel better. Or a taskmaster that we can never please. Honestly, if I'm honest with you guys... ...I'm a full-time Christian worker, right? Sometimes I think about Jesus... ...and at a deep level, at times, he's just my boss. You know, he's a guy that I work for. He's got something for me to do... ...and I need to do it and be faithful with it. But I'm still wrestling with Jesus. Who is he really in my life... ...at the deepest parts of me? Who is he? I think we all are wrestling with that. In the Gospels... They, they, ...you will see this as you guys walk through Mark... ...in the next couple months or however long... ...but you will see people wrestling with... ...who they really think Jesus really is. And they come to all sorts of different conclusions... I love the way that John the Baptist describes Jesus when he sees him. I I love it because I think for us, if we really look at John the Baptist's answer for Jesus and we really understand it... ...I think it will be the thing that will help grip our souls with who Jesus is. That will grip your church. That will bring vibrant life to yourself and your community and your family. You see, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, his description of Jesus is this. He says... ...behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now I kind of think... ...if John ever was asked this question directly... ...he might answer it that way. Jesus, you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To us in our context... That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You're like, oh, that's significant, Adam. Great, Lamb of God. I mean, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and God says stuff in it. And we think, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, that's God. He just says weird stuff sometimes that we don't totally understand. You know, for us, he might as well say, like, he's Jehovah's giraffe. You know, what does it mean that he says, I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? He is speaking to a very Jewish audience that understands. What, it, what the lamb meant in their custom, in their culture, in their religious worship. And I do believe that this is somehow the key for us to really have Jesus grip our souls. So in the religious system, the lamb was important. Uh, morning and night, every day, the, the priests, they would have a sacrifice. So they'd offer a sacrifice for sin. They'd use a lamb to do that, to hopefully cover up the sins of the people for that day. And then once a year, they would elect a high priest. Someone who would represent the whole nation of Israel. And that man's job was to then offer a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. And there would be all sorts of ceremonial cleansing and washing and sacrifices for this guy... ...so that he could be kind of okay with God, be presentable to God. Because this guy would have, to, he would have to go into the holiest place in the temple... ...a place that it was forbidden to go any other time, into the very presence of God... And he would after have to offer a sacrifice of a lamb for the people's sins. This was a big deal. You didn't just do this. I mean, there's the cleansing. They would uh, tie like a rope around his ankles and put a bells on him. And then he would kind of, you know, he'd crawl through the curtain and go in to do this thing. And because if you're not ready, if you're not clean, like you guys talked about, if you're not, if you're not right with God, you're dead. You're dead. You're toast. And the bells would stop ringing and the guys would be like, oh no, let's drag him out. You know, you got to get the guy back out with the rope. It was a big deal to come into God's presence. And every year, year after year, the high priest would take the blood of a pure and a spotless lamb. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, he would pour the blood out on top of the Ark of the Covenant. To, to be a propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, that's a, a big word. <laughs> but propitiation, it basically means this. It is a propitiation, the, the propitiation sheet, the Ark of the Covenant. It means the place where God's wrath towards sin is appeased by a substitute. And in this case, it's a lamb. You see, the death and the blood of the lamb represented the death and the blood that the people owed God for their own sin. See, I, if you think, you know, you think about this. Hundreds of years of blood poured on top of a pretty golden thing. It's not the golden thing we think of from Indiana Jones, you know. It's probably really gruesome. Dark, caked on blood from a lamb year after year. You know, because our sin to God is gruesome. It's disgusting and it means death. It means spiritual death. It's gruesome. You know, we can rationalize it away and think, oh, it's not that big of a deal that I, you know, that I was really ticked off at my wife on the way to church this morning. That's frustrated and short with the kids or, you know, as I'm looking at my income taxes or whatever it is in your life. We can rationalize it away. We can call it a poor choice or a mistake or whatever, but it's sin. And it means spiritual death and separation from God. God. So year after year, there would be a death of a lamb. And it, that, that death of the lamb would never take away sin. It would just sort of cover it up for a time. Scripture says that we are all in this boat with sin. So what God did is he created a religious system where the blood of the lamb would cover up the sins of the people. Ultimately, that system would not take away the sin of the people, only cover it up for a time. It, it's like me when I was a kid cleaning my room. I hated cleaning my room. Every Saturday, my parents would make me clean the room, my room. If you are a kid who's being forced on Saturdays to clean your room, stand up and revolt. No, I'm done. Don't do that. But also, don't listen to my example of cleaning my room. Uh, so what I would do is, and this would take me hours. I planned this. I would like, well, first of all, I would just kind of like bulldoze everything like you know with my arms and cram it under my bed right and it'd be under there would be like underwear and old clothes and crinkled up papers candy bar wrappers, half-eaten sandwiches I would—I found under my bed. You know, like, it was disgusting. And then I would line up my shoes or boxes really neatly in front of the junk that I've just crammed under my bed. So that, and hang my sheet, you know, kind of over, over the edge of the bed real neatly. So when my mom came in, my mom, it would look pretty nice, right? I did the same thing in my closet. I had this bar with my clothes hanging down and um, I would, I would, they would hang down and I would stack the shoe boxes and things up underneath it real nice and neatly. And then I'd just throw stuff over the top of the bar. And there would be this like three, you know, three foot by three foot by like four foot high pile of stuff behind there. The junk was never dealt with. It was just covered up. And our sin in this system was never really taken away. It was just sort of covered up. Never really dealt with. Hebrews 10.4 says... ...for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats... ...to take away sins. It was an imperfect system. But that system was a foreshadowing... ...intended to point us to Christ... ...the perfect Lamb of God... ...who would not just cover it up... ...but would take away the sins of the world... ...by dying on a cross... ...for you and for me. Jesus didn't deserve death. He lived without sinning. He didn't deserve it. He had to pay... He's fully God, fully man. He had to pay his human life human life for human sin but because he was also infinite and fully God he could pay for all the sin of all of humanity for all of history and he did that for you and me he's the perfect lamb who takes away the sins of the world so instead of a lamb as a substitute the body of Jesus becomes the place where God's wrath towards sin in our lives is appeased he is the propitiation for our sins Do you see that So 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ goes willingly to a cross and he dies a horrific death. And hanging, bleeding on a cross with his skin stripped from his back, in his infinite mind's eye, he can see your face and he can whisper your name. And in that moment, as he gives up his life, he says, for you. I do this for you. I die so that you can live. I die so that you can have eternal life. So that I can be, as John says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Does that grip your heart? It's supposed to grip our hearts. If you know Jesus, there is a man who has died for you. He's given his life up for you. And if we don't get this, if, it's, if, you're, if it doesn't grip our heart, something is wrong. I mean, either we've just grown accustomed to it, or, you know, or we don't really understand it. You know, it's like the War of 1812, just some facts. Or at some level we don't really believe it. Like deep down, we don't get it. You know, and if that's the case, if if we've become accustomed to it, here's what I want you guys to do. You need to take some time and remember who you were and who you are now. You need to take the time to remember what God has done in your life. Even our stories about what God has done can become, we can get accustomed to them. We need to remember what he has done for us. And then, you know what you need to do? Like, Write it. Get a journal. Spend some time in the morning. Sometime. Today. And do remember for yourself what has happened. What he's done for you. And then talk about it. On your way home from church today. Dad. With your kids. Tell them. Dad was going down the wrong track. He was into himself. And all sorts of things. And then... I heard about Jesus and it didn't totally make sense at first... ...but then I, I, I saw who he was and I said yes and he changed me. You guys, you wouldn't recognize me today. I'm a different man than, than I would have been if Jesus hadn't changed my heart. But talk about it as a family today. Talk about it as a community. Tell the story of what Jesus has done for you. And then tell it to people who don't know either... You know, there's something about talking to somebody about who Jesus is in your life... ...who doesn't know Jesus... ...that makes the story of what he's done for you come alive. We need to be people who talk about it. So it stays fresh. If you've never responded to it... ...if you've never said, wow, Jesus, this is who you are... ...this is what you've died so I could have life... ...then you need to respond to it. And today, say, Jesus, I want you and I need you. I am screwed up. There are things in my life that I'm ashamed of... ...that I wouldn't want anybody else to know about... Today, I need your forgiveness. Will you come into my life? Will you make me the person you want me to be? I want you and I need you. Change me. Be the Lamb of God who takes away my sins. We need to do that. Because in the process of doing these things... ...what we're really asking... ...and what we're really coming to the conclusion of... ...is the conclusion, the answer to this question. We're really saying, who is Jesus to me? We're reminding ourselves... So this morning I want you to picture Jesus Christ is looking into your face and he's saying who do you really who do you say I am? I really want you to get this right. Who are you? Who am I to you on your deepest level? I want you to know that I've given everything for you. I love you. I've died so you could have life. When we get that it will change everything. But I do believe Jesus wants to get personal with you this morning. And force you to answer this question. We need the truth of what Jesus has done for us to sink deep enough into us. And off enough into us that we, we cannot get familiar or bored with what he's done for us. It should never become Old. It should grip us. Someone has died so that you can have life. And I just want to tell you a story. um, A story from history, from World War II, that grips my heart. It's a story of substitution. of Someone who gave their life for someone else. In the Second World War, in the German concentration camp at Auschwitz... The commander had a policy that whatever, when, whenever a prisoner attempted to escape, 10 other prisoners would be executed in his place. The story is told by a Polish Jewish prisoner named Franciszek Goljownewicz. This is a story of substitution, of someone giving their life for someone else. On a snow-covered morning, the siren sounded and everyone was commanded to line up in the central quadrangle. And the Gestapo, Gestapo commander marched out in his shiny black suit with a large haler and announced to the prisoners in bare feet and pajamas that the pre- previous night a prisoner had tried to escape. The fugitive has not been found, the commander, commandant Carl Fritz screamed. You will all pay for this. Ten of you will be locked in a starvation bunker without food or water until you die. And the prisoners trembled with terror. I see, a few days in the bunker and without food and water, and a man's intestines dried up. And his brain felt like it was on fire. I have a manifesto list of your names in front of me. If your name is called, you will come to the front and you will die in order to teach you a lesson about trying to escape. Franciszek tells of how he stood in formation shoulder to shoulder with other prisoners as names were called out. Six names. Eight names. Nine names. So you can't imagine what it's like to hear people's names called out. He's, you can't imagine what it feels like. It's like someone taking a hot poker and sticking it into your gut every time a name is called out. And then in agony, he heard his own name called out as the tenth name. French talks in his book, he talks about um, how many Jews went with dignity and honor to their death in these camps. But he said, not this Jew. When they called my name, I fell in the snow and I wailed and I screamed and I begged for mercy. Don't take me. Please don't take me. I cried for my family's sake, for my wife and my children. I cried, please don't take me. I begged and I blubbered like a baby, but they carried me to the front of the assembly with the other nine. But on that occasion, a miracle occurred. An 11th prisoner whose name had not been called broke from the ranks and made his way to the front of the assembly. I sounded the icy faced uh, Nazi coming and asked, Who, What does this Polish pig want? As Francesca continued to sob for mercy, he looked up and recognized the man as a German Jew by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. Colby had been converted to Christianity, had become a Franciscan monk, and had ended up in Auschwitz as a prisoner. He was known to everyone as the Christ or the Saint of Auschwitz. It was said of Colby that he would give his food to those less starving than he, he would give up his blanket to those less frozen than he. It was said that among the survivors, survivors, they said he lived so selfishly amongst us that it was as if Christ was living with us in the camp. And that morning, Colby addressed the Gestapo Commandant respectfully and said, Could I just take a moment of your time? Hear this man who sobs and wails for mercy. He is young and fit and just ended up in the camp. I am old and frail and have been in the camp much longer than he. He will be much more of use to you in crushing rocks in the quarry than I. Hear his cry for his wife and children. I'm a priest. I have no wife and children. Would you please consider me taking his place for execution?" Franciszek, amazed, looked up through his tears to see the commandant shrug his shoulders and say, ten lives are ten lives after all. Your request is granted. Father Colby was then taken with the other nine where they were locked in a cave to starve to death, and he ministered to the others as they died in his arms, but he himself lived too long. And so he was executed and thrown into an unmarked mass grave. Now today, Maximilian Kolbe is well remembered. People know his name in church history. But for many years, nobody knew that story, except for one Polish Jew, Franciszek. He survived Auschwitz until he became until it became liberated by the United States, and he returned to Poland. And he says in his books that ye, in his book, years every year on that day, he says every year on that day. That that Jew died for me, I take the whole day off and I sit at the bottom of my backyard. I have a granite boulder and a glass plaque with his name engraved upon it. And I simply sit and I remember that Jew who died for me. My life has been cursed and blessed in the most magnificent way. You see, when somebody dies for you that you might have life, you cannot waste a minute of it. Because to do so would be to dishonor the life of the man who died for you. He says, I can't get involved in pointless gossip or slander. I can't cheat on my income taxes. I can't tell little white lies. My every choice, my every action has been chosen in memory and in honor of the man who died that I might have life. Men and women, we need to go down down to the backyard, the bottom of our soul the boulder that we have placed there with the name of Jesus Christ and again and again remember the one who gave his life for us so that we could have life not dull duty or guilt or pointless boring religion but out of passionate, grateful love for the one who gave his life for us let that man's life change every action every moment of how we live. Because our lives, too, have been blessed and cursed in the most magnificent way. Let me pray for you. Jesus, thank you for what you did. Thank you that you love us, that you've died for us. Thank you that, um, yeah, that that's true. You sacrificed yourself for us. Would we never get over it? Would you grip our souls with what you have done for us? Would you become the passion of our lives? Would you be the passion of this church? And would you never become like the War of 1812? But would you be the Lamb of God who took away the sins of our life and takes away the sins of the world? We love you. Amen.
0: If you'd like somebody to pray with you. Um, There will be some people down here to talk to you and and pray with you. John and I will be out in the the narthex with the Nazgul to greet you if you're newer. Um, And uh, let's pray together. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord um, lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you enjoy um, a current and rich knowledge of Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and yours. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.